0: All right. Very good. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, We're going to jump in. I have a confession. Uh, I am not a fan of Christmas music in July. I'm not a fan of Christmas music in October. I'm not a fan of Christmas music um, in the early part of November. My wife tried to pull a fast one on me. I heard Christmas music early in November. I was like, I am not ready for that. But as soon as the turkey is digested and Black Friday comes, I love Christmas music. There's some there's some classics. I don't know what yours are. We might disagree on some. I love Vince Guaraldi. I love the music that he created. Bing Crosby's uh, amazing. Amy Grant's awesome. Uh, some of those are my favorites. There there's some Christmas bangers. Oh, Holy Night is. Always fun you never know when you're listening to O Holy night the first time on an album are they gonna like stay chill or are they gonna go up? you know like you know what I'm talking about you're like kind of wonder the first time you listen to it. Mary did you know has some vocal runs that are incredible. I talked about this several years ago but but celo Green I don't typically quote him or mention him at all in my sermons but he is one that's just awesome in his vocal runs. Uh, Breath of heaven. Amy Grant's rendition of Breath of Heaven just chills down my spine. Hark the Herald, it slaps as well. And, you know, as you go through these, right, like you go through these and you listen to them. Like you're at, we used to go to the mall. We don't do that anymore. But when we did do that or we used to go to the stores we used to go to before we just shopped online, you would go into a store and you'd, you'd hear these tunes and you like pause for a second. And you're like, man, the meaning and the lyrics here are just crazy, theologically accurate, not all of them, Santa Claus coming to town, like, not theologically accurate, but I'm talking about some of these meaty ones that are just really, really profound. For example, if you listen to these words from Hark the Herald Angels saying it, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Please with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Like songs like that, that are just rich and potent, and and just concentrated and powerful, that we listen to, and we can kind of lose the profound nature of them. This morning, I want to consider the details of what we just read and hark the herald angels sing. I want to consider the theme of the incarnation and more broadly the theme of the humility of God that we see in this season of Christmas. We're in a teaching series um, in the Gospel of John, being invited to believe again. And we've entered into John 13, going through some texts we don't typically go through in Advent, but we found that their themes are very, um, they parallel to so much of the Advent season. And so up to this point, we've, we've seen that worship follows his excellence and overcomes greed. Sam talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We considered Jesus as king last week and that his kingdom is nothing nothing like this world. And this morning we're going to consider the humility of God or the condescension of Christ, that he was rich and he became poor for us. And as we peer into this text this week and the ones next week, I'm just praying that our hearts would melt at the humility and pursuit and care of Jesus for us. I have two points as we consider uh, the text this morning. Uh, And the first is this, that Jesus reveals to us that humility is the standard in his kingdom. I'm going to read in John chapter 13, starting in verse 4. It says, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now before the feast of the Passover... He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. I'm gonna pray for us. Fathers, we spend some time in this text this morning. by your spirit would you illuminate our hearts? Would you allow us to see something afresh? Would you allow us to see the beautiful nature of Jesus in his pursuit of us? His care for us. I pray you'd meet us where we are and stir our affections for you. In Jesus' name, amen. In those first few verses we just read, there's some pretty significant phrases that set the stage for the event that's at hand. There's a few that are just important to make mention of. The first is that the Passover feast was at hand. That this Passover moment, the culmination of centuries, year after year for centuries, the Jews would set aside this time and reflect on God's pursuit of them, reflect on his protection and his deliverance in Exodus. So every year, they would have a meal called the Passover meal, and in this time, they would remember God's care and his protection and deliverance over, uh, deliverance from the oppression that they had over, over Egypt, and his uh, protection of death of the firstborn son through the provision of a lamb slain and the blood that was put over the doorpost. And so now we see a, a significant scene. This is the night before Jesus died. And so we've, we've been spending some significant time from John 1 through 12 over a several year period. And now we're honing in from thirteen John 13 through John 21. And it's just hours. It's the evening that we're in right now through the following few days of his death and resurrection. So you can imagine it's like that we are, if it was this evening, it would be t- tonight around dinner time is where the story is. And then by the next morning, Jesus has been led to a cross. It's, that's the time frame we're in from John 13 through the end of the gospel. And what we're seeing is the night before Jesus' death, which is a re- reminder of where John's moving in this, that there's a greater pas- Passover being instituted, not one where there is oppression from a government. No, this king had come to be a greater Passover lamb, to free his people from a greater oppressor, Satan, sin, and death. And his hour had come. And from there it says that he loved them to the ends. I love that John just drops these little bombs. In John 3, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And here, we're reminded that he loved them to the end. It means that he loved them to the uttermost, or he loved them to, um, utterly to the end. See, the mission of Jesus was and always is and will be a pursuit of, of love and out of a motivation of love. To so love the world, the heart of Jesus is becoming more and more clear to us. And then it says in verse 3 that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, see, with such power and status at his disposal, we could expect him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy con, uh, confrontation. He could devastate Judas's greed with divine wrath in the moment. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet. He has all of this power and this status, and how does he respond? It's so different than what we would think. Let us not overlook this as we enter into the discussion on humility and condescension, that he knew all power was at his disposal. You know, there's just so many stories that we know of, of people who abuse power, And Jesus is not like that. He never has been, and he never will be. Jesus is nothing like that. Jesus will never use his power to abuse. On the contrary, Jesus uses his power to serve, which leads to verse four where it says that he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel around his waist he, t- he tied it around his waist. See, his clarity had such confidence in knowing who he was that he was willing to serve freely and gladly. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And let it not be missed that he also washed Judas' feet. And the story continues with the conversations, picking up in verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head, my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. There's this conversation that that, uh, ensues as Jesus exemplifies this quality of humility. The scene is set. The disciples are reclining at a table. They don't eat like we eat. The table is much lower, and they're they're laying on the ground. They're likely on their left uh, arm, and their body is moving away from the table. You can imagine the scene. Though. This is a the, the evening, like now, the sun set then, like it does today, and so the sun is now set, and they don't have electricity, and so there's just candles that are lighting up the room. It's dimly. Lit and they have now eaten their full. They're, they're satisfied. Their tummies are filled. And Jesus took off his outer garments and wrapped a towel around his waist, adopting the, the dress of a menial slave. Such clarity that John's trying to communicate to us. He wants to bring us into this beautiful moment, a moment that he would never forget. This moment that exemplified to him that Jesus is among us as one who serves. And then this conversation happens between Jesus and, and Peter. And Peter says to Jesus, and in an indignant way, he says, Are you going to wash my feet? He's like, that's not your job. That's for the Gentiles. That's for people not like us. We don't do that. You can't do that. You're a leader. You're a rabbi. You don't do that, Jesus, and we don't do that. It's so apparent that Jesus's kingdom was just so absurdly counter to the system that Peter had in his mind. I mean, just so ridiculously different than what Peter thought Jesus should be doing. You can recall back to that scene in Matthew 16, where Jesus and Peter, having this conversation, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some say you're a prophet, some say you're, John, you're Elijah, and then he leans in, and he says, but who do you guys say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and then right after that, Jesus says, and I'm going to die. Peter didn't have an understanding of the one who's coming to rescue his people We're gonna, was going to die first, and so Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, if you remember that story, and I'd love to read it to you, it says in Matthew sixteen twenty-four: "If if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, Peter still has no grid for the kingdom of Jesus and the value of humility and servanthood that's happening. His his values are just wildly different than Jesus's. And if we're honest, I don't know if we understand how counter Jesus's kingdom is to our own assumptions and our own thoughts. If we're honest, I think that we would probably agree that we deserve things that we probably don't deserve, and we're entitled to things that we probably aren't entitled to. Yet, with this in mind, in John 13, we find this act that Jesus joyfully embraces, which was again reserved for the slave, the Gentile slave. And what he does here is both unnecessary and stunning. I don't want us to miss the depth that's being exemplified in this moment. He He's not just trying to prove something. He isn't showing off here. Jesus isn't. He he is exuding who he is. He is consistent. He's unflappable. And in his kingdom, he is one as the king. He is the one who serves. Jesus as the king of his kingdom is the one who serves. Just consider a few snippets and the, and the teachings of Jesus through his ministry. I'll just run through a couple of them for you, considering the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirits. He says a little later on in Matthew 11. He says, learn from me, I am gentle and humble in heart. In Matthew 18, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Again, later in Matthew, whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. In Matthew 23, he says, the greatest among you shall be your servants. Then in Luke 18, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I wonder if we, like, I wonder if I, really believe that the greatest among us is the one who serves. This is the way of the kingdom of Jesus. See, humility is a core value in the kingdom of Jesus. It's essential. If we want to grow and follow Jesus, humility is essential. See, the blessed life is through the path of humility. And on the contrary... Pride is the very poison of hell. It's a exaltation of oneself. It's a. It's a. Um, we'll see it in the garden. We see the old serpent led Eve to let poison into her soul and into Adam's, destroying forever the blessed humility and dependence upon God. See, he overinflated their thoughts of themselves. He overinflated their thoughts. Of the enemy and in return stole her everlasting and his everlasting inheritance. See, Jesus reveals to us that humility is the standard in the kingdom of Jesus. See, unless we embrace the humility of Jesus, we're not going to be able to experience the life that's found in this kingdom. Unless we embrace our own bankruptcy and our need for Jesus, we will never experience the depth of this. this is what Jesus is telling us here. It leads to the second point, which is this. Humility is the blessed invitation for all who follow him. It's the blessed invitation. We read it in John, uh, going on in verse 12, it says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then your Lord He uses this language of Lord and teacher, and that's important in how we understand Jesus. There are clear notes of apprenticeship here. That's the essence of what discipleship is. Our understanding of discipleship is not for the few, and then the rest of us can just settle to be Christians. We can just settle to just have faith that we're good when we die, but there's kind of no engagement of him being our teacher and our Lord on this side of heaven. See, to follow Jesus is to have faith and trust in Jesus as the provision of God and to follow Jesus. We would define discipleship as sojourn as, as this pre- apprenticing Jesus and becoming deeply formed by Him. Apprenticing Jesus and becoming deeply formed by, them, by Him. We experience His, his grace and, and care and, and we take on the ways of our Master. We grow to embrace His values though those values may be foreign to us as they were foreign to Peter, we allow him to shape and mold and transform us ultimately to the core. See, there is a blessed invitation in the invitation to follow Jesus, and it's through the path of humility. Is this not the essence of the Christian narrative, the Christmas narrative? The incarnation is a is a beautiful story of God's pursuit and his depth and care that we talk about in the Christmas season. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is not talking about monetary Richness and poverty. This is talking about a spiritual richness that though he was rich, he became poor for us. Philippians 2 5 and following it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, his arrival is bathed with humility. Like, the, the beginning of his life is bathed with humility. There's two excerpts to consider. One by a guy named Calvin Miller who wrote a book called The Book of Jesus. is a, a bunch of excerpts of the life of Jesus. And one of them is this. Thou who inflamest the seraphim with holy fire, but can we try that again? Thou who inflamest the seraphim with holy fire are now shivering with colds in the stable. Thou who are the joy of heaven does now whimper and cry in suffering. The humility of our King. Hans Or von Balth- Balthvar, but it's a, a German guy, so <laughs> he says this, this is a long quote, but worth reading. Standing in awe of God is one thing. Loving him is quite another thing. You can go through life obedient and struck by his awesomeness, but it is quite another thing to be struck by his tenderness, to be tender toward God. When you know his humanity and tender acquaintance with your frame, your heart feels safe to move towards him and ask questions you normally would not ask. It is sheer joy to engage with your older brother in dialogue and in worship, free to love him with your particular personality. This is where contemplation sets to work. On the one hand, what the son is and does is human and is, and is thus uh, Comprehensible, even with the quality of Christ's humanity, is so different from other humanity and from everything that is possible in the world. All the same, the humanity of the Son of Man is human. It is not interfered with. There is not grotesque distortion. It bears the mark of its divine quality just as white hot iron shows its heat. Indeed, the divine reveals its incomparable power. And the very fact that what is human is not destroyed. If two magnitudes were of the same order, the greater would be of necessity, be a threat to the lesser. A tree planted in a flower pot will burst it. Only God can appear in a creature without destroying it. Faith is rendered able to contemplate the divine in creaturely form. The point is that his arrival is bathed in humility, his life is bathed in humility. His death is bathed in humility. And his second coming, his second advent, is bathed in humility. In Luke 12, 37, it has this beautiful little statement that Jesus makes. that Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Our king, when he comes again, will throw a feast, and he will be the host, and he will serve all who are his. Blessed, we have this blessed invitation of humility that Jesus offers to us. And here's the point, here's the challenge, that everything in us wars against this invitation of humility. And we're shaped by this notion that a happy life is a life that thinks much about itself. Like let's remember the water that we're swimming in. We live in this day and age that is filled with this notion that to be happy is to be filled with a life that is consumed with yourself. That's outside the church and it's inside the church. It's outside of uh, in organizations of leadership and it's inside the church in aspects of church. Leadership. Man, I know of currently a handful of investigations with organizations and churches being exposed for looking nothing like Jesus, using people and power to get what they want. We've created this weird culture in the church at times that looks nothing like Jesus. Leadership shouldn't make us less like Jesus. Leadership should make us look more like Jesus. Servant's not greater than his master. Andrew Murray, who lived in the 19th century, dying in 1917, provided a beautiful challenge at that time and in this time. He says, I cannot too greatly impress upon my readers the need of realizing the lack there is today of humility within Christian circles. There's so little of the meek and lowly Lamb of God and those who are called by His name. Let us consider how our lack of love, indifference to the needs and feelings of others, even sharp comments, hasty judgments that are often excused as being honest and straightforward are thwarting the effect of the influence of the Holy Spirit on others. Manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritations, feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. Pride keeps in almost everywhere. And the assemblies of the saints are no exception. Let's ask ourselves, what would be the effect if all of us were guided by the humility of Jesus? That the cry of our whole heart, night and day, would be, oh, for the humility of Jesus and myself and all around me. Let us honestly fix our heart on our lack of humility that which has been revealed in the likeness of Christ's life and the whole character of his redemption and realizing how little we know of Christ and his salvation. And then his action step, study the humility of Jesus. Friends, the blessed invitation for you and the blessed invitation for me and our leaders and our elders is to be a people who follow Jesus and embrace the humility of Jesus. See, up until the 20th century, traditional cultures believed that to have too high of a view of yourself was the thing that would be damning to a society. So hubris and pride were the things that you needed to attack and destroy. And so oftentimes, on the contrary, there would be a, a, a low view of oneself, a degraded view of oneself. And now in modern times, we're in a very different space. That to enter into a space of misbehaving or, uh, is, is from a lack of self-esteem, because we have too low of a view of ourselves, so there's a promotion of self. So there's been this teeter-tottered reality, and it's forming us. It's forming who we're becoming. And Jesus invites us to be reformed. See, the solution is neither, not one or the other. We can very easily be sucked into this hollow lie. See, we're invited into this blessed place of thinking less, not little, but less of ourselves as Jesus was confident. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. And what did that lead him to do? To not think about himself and to serve. That's the invitation we are given. Tim Keller says this. He says, self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness brings blessed rest. Not thinking more of myself as in modern cultures or less of myself as in traditional cultures. Instead, simply thinking of myself less. See, the essence of humility isn't thinking with a lower view of yourself, but simply thinking of yourself less. I resonate with the words of Jonathan Edwards when he said, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. It's a beautiful invitation, my friends. It's within this Advent season that we sit with the story of Jesus, his incarnation, his utter humility who emptied himself. We see it continue. And it's ironic in a time where we are reminded of the utter humility of God, that we can potentially spend more time on thinking about ourselves and the things that we need and the things that we want, which is different than the way of Jesus. See, though he was rich, he became poor. Though he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself. He took on flesh, flesh and his arrival was not with paparazzi, but in a barn, because there was no room for him in the end. He washed his disciples' feet. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He died on a criminal's cross. He will come again and serve the redeemed. Friends, this is our king. F.B. Meyer says this. He says, the only hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. So family, we're invited to behold our humble king, to allow our pride to, In our ego focused self, to be melted by the humility of God, his pursuit, and his care to love for others. It's challenging, yes, but the invitation of this blessed gift to us is to find life, to find joy, and to find the gift that he offers to us in giving of ourselves. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is the story of the Christmas narrative. And we submit to it and we find life in it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hmm. Hmm. Father, we begin just with a simple confession. We're prone to wander, yes. And we're prone to Fight for our life, for ourself, for our voice, to be understood, all the things. We fight for it. I feel it all the time in my own life. Well I pray you teach us to, in our own journey of growth and development, and maturity, that in it, that we would find this tension of knowing that we are ridiculously loved by God through grace. And we have nothing to prove. And that would embolden us to give of ourselves for another. It would help us to see the life of the kingdom and the offer that you give. Help us to be able to have clearer eyes to see the pride that just seeps into culture and life. And that we would be a distinct people. People of humility. We don't belittle ourselves. Don't promote ourselves, but just think less about ourselves, more about others. Help us. Help us, Lord. We give you thanks. We bless you. We thank you that though you were rich, you became poor for us. Let it melt our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen.